Recovery Radio, where we discuss substance abuse treatment and recovery. You can listen live at blogtalkradio.com forward slash OCG Radio. Please note that the views and opinions of our hosts and guests are not necessarily the views of OCG, nor is it meant to replace professional advice or the advice of your physician. And now, here's our show, Roach on Recovery, with your host, Roach. Welcome, welcome, folks. Welcome <laughs> to another episode of Roach on Recovery. This is your host, Orville Roach, along with my producer, co-host, engineer, Chris Morales. You in the house? In the house. 646-564-9909. 646-564-99 is the number if you want to call and speak to us. If you want to listen to the show, you can go to our show website. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash OCG radio. Blogtalkradio.com forward slash OCG radio. You don't have to call in on the call in line and listen to the show unless that's your only means. Make it happen. And please follow us. <laughs> please follow us. On the show website. On the show, yeah, on exactly. The show, on the show website. We have to be clear on that, the show website. It's not, a, you know, it's just a tiny little account you're creating. I promise you they won't sell your credit card information to anybody. Just make it happen. They don't ask for credit card information. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but you won't be getting spam or anything like that. All right. Let's go to our happy recap. Um, first things first. Let's send out some get well wishes. Okay. To our uh, former senior vice president, oh. when we were under the Daytop banner and in the early days of our common ground. He's also the founder and longtime leader of Daytop New Jersey, uh, the wonderful Joe Hennon. Mr. Hennon, yes. Who's uh, Father Hennon. Father Hennon, yeah, but we know him as Joe Hennon. Uh, he would never tell you he was a, a priest unless you somehow found out. Dr. Hennon as well? Uh, I think so. He's got a PhD. PhD, yeah. Yep. Uh, so before I get to why we want, we're giving get, uh, get Well Wishes, Joe's reti- retired twice. And each time he's been like dragged out of retirement. Okay. Um, back into the struggle. Um, he, he's definitely retired now uh, and living in... Uh, Hilo, Hawaii, island of Hilo, yeah, okay. in Hawaii. Yeah. Uh, but he came back stateside to his uh, home state, which is Minnesota, 
So, of course, he's a big Vikings, big Twins, and big whatever Timberwolves. You, whatever sports teams, major sports teams, he's a big, big fan. Okay. The Wild? Uh, you name it. The, the hockey team, right? Yeah. Um, so to receive some, he came back to receive some specialized medical care. Uh, but he's on the mend, feeling much better. Uh, word on the street is that he's recovering and hopes he can get out to see us here soon in California. Wonderful. So um, We would love to have you. Yep. So continue to uh, get well wishes to Joe Hennon. Quick, uh, quick interjection here, geographical correction before next week's happy recap. Did you say the island of Hilo? Yes. Okay, Hilo is a city on the island of Hawaii, the big island. Okay. So, yeah, he's on the island of Hilo. <laughs> <laughs> well done. Well, there's actually, it's funny, it's the big island, the biggest of the chain, mm-hmm. but only two sides that are referred to, Kona and Hilo. Okay. I believe Hilo is the side of the island that the volcano still erupts daily. I've actually seen it erupt. Pretty cool. And there, and when we had the uh, the tsunami that hit Japan... He, yes. He he. At that time, I remember being on the phone with him when the siren went off. Okay. And he was like, "Oh, that's the, uh, tsunami, the tsunami warning." warning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a regular. Yeah, it's a regular thing to them. Yeah. Um. Uh. Can we uh, do a, a follow up to the sharing is caring segment on my brother? Where that's at. Sure. So he yes, is. Uh, he is out of the acute uh, detox. Okay. And so out of the ICU, out, out of the ICU, okay. out of the acute detox, the the medical detox is finished, and now um, my understanding is that he is uh, amenable to going back into treatment. I'm not sure if there were any limbs and arms twisted and limbs broken <laughs> and what have you. I can't speak to that. Right. But uh, word is that he is amenable to going back into treatment, and right now they're, uh, you know, they're working to try and find him a place to yeah. go. I'm hoping he can get back into the VA. Sure. Um but we'll see where that goes. But he has quote unquote survived the detox and he's uh upright walking in uh for now amongst the living. Oh that's beautiful. That's yeah. a beautiful thing. It's not um having to go through that extreme of a medical detox for alcohol mm-hmm. it's not a given. That you are going to make it through. Yeah. And then even being amenable, limbs twisted or not, versus cursing out the nurses or whatever you said he was doing a week ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, being ornery. <laughs> yeah. Um, being open, at least now, being open to going into treatment is a huge step. So let's hope he can find himself, a, or they, whoever's working with him to make this happen, can find him a good place. And as we had mentioned last week, we hope it's not. You know, even though there's been periods of sobriety, it's it's you know it's been dry sobriety, you know dry drunk sobriety. Sure. We we want we, we want some we want work done. We want some serious digging into the trauma and uh, the issues. The done. car accident you had mentioned. Yeah. So, um, last week before uh, the producer cut me off at the end of the show, um, our last caller had raised some interesting. Questions that I want to continue on. Okay. Um, so the first, he had two questions, and the first one was, "What's the difference between meth, 
coke, and heroin. This is a caller you're referring yeah, the, to. Yeah, remember the last guy we had? Yeah, yeah, that's right. And we had to cut him off because you were threatening to just that's right. Just, just cut me off, plug, pull yeah. the plug, and <laughs> the credits start the credits rolling. Uh, so the the he asked two quick questions which we didn't get a chance to really delve into, and right. I really liked the topic, right. which was what's the difference between meth, coke, and heroin? So let's take that one first. Mm-hmm. In answering his question, so in terms of we know methamphetamine is a stimulant. That's correct. Coke is a stimulant. Also, yes. Um, heroin is a depressant. De- depressant, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then he followed up which I think was a very interesting question, which why would one choose one over the other? Oh, it's all a matter of taste. Uh, ultimately, <laughs> yes. Ultimately. Um, you know, and I was, quick answer before we had to go off the air was that, you know, cocaine, you know, can be, for some, it's still glamorous. Sure. You know what yeah. I mean? Before it gets to the point, the manner in which you know people who are sniffing coke, you know, it's glamorous. It's oh you know, yeah, Wall Street, millions of dollars. Where yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. you get that surge of endorphins and, and pleasure, pleasure rush, etc. The Wolf of Wall Street kind of showed how yeah. glamorous it could be, in or looked at in that light. Right. I, I tell people all the time that if 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 I never if I didn't quote unquote graduate from cocaine to crack cocaine. Because when I was doing coke, I didn't think I had a problem. You graduated at the top of your class? Uh, uh, fortunately, <laughs> yeah. fortunately, you know, doing crack cocaine was the best thing that ever happened to me. There you have it. I could still be out there. That's true. I always say I could still be out there because when I true. was doing coke, as far as I was concerned, I didn't have a problem. Right. Okay. And then along came crack cocaine, which said, I'm sorry. You do have a problem. <laughs> yes, you do. Very quickly. So I, I am. Uh, I, I looked, at, looked at that as a blessing. Yeah. Um, in terms of a person choosing one drug or the other, environment plays a part. Um, I also say to people, well, did you ever use heroin? No. But that's not to say that if it wasn't available in my environment, that it wouldn't have, it wouldn't have happened. I can't say that. Marijuana was in my environment eventually. Cocaine was available in my environment eventually. Crack cocaine was available in my environment, but heroin was not available in my environment. That's interesting. So, um, so the limit of options can impact dictate. Right, and we weren't and we weren't traveling. I wasn't like traveling to other parts of New York to to shop. It was whatever was in the you know in the neighborhood is what you at least my peer group. Sure. No. Same with me. Um. But depending on what part of the city you you lived in, determined what was you know sometimes what was available. Right. Um, I mean, South Jamaica, Queens, and and others may debate this, but at least what we saw in the newspapers, what we what we heard, South Jamaica, Queens was like the crack capital of the of, of the city. Wow. Okay. You know what I mean, um, I'm not sure what was going on in in in, in Manhattan and Harlem. In you know Bedford Stuyvesant Brooklyn Brownsville Brooklyn at that time what 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 was really the major the top drug on the top of the list mm. even now when I go back east you know you know meth is back there but it's still not back there like it is out in, here out west and in the Midwest yeah you know that's interesting saying? yeah oh it's predominant like you said out here and in the Midwest yeah. Brownsville I believe was heroin only because I have a good friend yeah. former 
uh, coworker who was from Brownsville and yeah. let me know that was what was in that Pumping neighborhood out predominantly. There, yeah. Yeah. There's also, um, if if he wants to get deep with the question or we want to get deep with the answer, neurological or physiological reasons why one might choose a drug, and that's like you hear the term self-medicating all the time, but that's what it means, i.e., a question we were asked a couple months ago when a caller called in and said, why would taking a stimulant help to suppress somebody's symptoms from ADD? Right. Because it seems like you're adding fuel to the fire. Right. Well, the same kind of thing if someone has something going on neurologically or physiologically, there might be a particular drug that calms that, and it could be the opposite of whatever that individual is dealing with. So someone with ADD might seek out a stimulant subconsciously. Right. Because it has an effect on them when they use it and the depressants for other reasons. So, Well, it's similar to people who might be a little bit knowledgeable, let's say street knowledgeable on marijuana or coke and heroin or whatever and unaware of the effects it may have. And as a result, based on whatever either conscious or subconscious reasons, choose to smoke marijuana or do coke. But I'll give you a perfect example. Traditionally speaking, coke is a social drug. So people who are sniffing cocaine, you know, are become more social. It's just the like one of the side effects yeah. of the drug. You become more sociable, talk, you know, talkative, and so on and so mm-hmm. forth. If you start smoking it, it's totally different. The, sure. the effect that it has on you. Right. Okay. You become antisocial. You don't want to be around anybody. Don't interrupt my high. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, right. All right. that stuff. Right. Um, but. An interesting thing I found out during my graduation evaluation, when to speak to your point about choosing certain drugs and being aware of them and their effect, they said, we notice, Orville, that you don't drink or there's no drinking in your history. Why is that? They questioned. I said, well, I don't know. I just don't really have a taste for alcohol. Yeah. We think there's another reason. <laughs> they shouted out. Remember, these are New Yorkers, so they're of course. they're shouting boisterous. It. Boisterous. They shouted. They were shouting it at me. We think there's another reason. I said, okay, I'm open to that. So, well, we looked at the drugs that you listed here that you've used, and the only one that you haven't used really is alcohol, and alcohol is the only drug. And I agree 100% with this in terms of me. Not only did I not like the taste of alcohol, but I also knew that alcohol was the only drug that could make me not know what I was doing, saying, or thinking, hmm. or remember anything. And I didn't want any part of that. Right. I knew smoking marijuana, you know, after you built up a tolerance, you, can, you wouldn't not remember what you did the next day, or you could get to a point where you can function, you know what I'm saying? Cocaine, the same thing. Heroin, the same thing. Crack, the same thing. But alcohol, no. Blacking out or, you know, becoming so drunk to the point that you have no idea what you're saying to whom you're saying it. I said, no, I couldn't fathom that. I wanted to always be in In control. control. And so the point they were making is that their closing message was, we just wanted to point that out to you. You don't need to be in control of everything. Yeah, yeah. That was their closing before they sent me out the room. Okay. They didn't even tell me I was a graduate yet. They no, said, they made they you said, sweat a little they bit. Said, yeah, okay, you can go now. So, yeah, that's a that's a very good question. 
to mull over about why why one person would choose one drug over the other, mm-hmm. and the answer can go millions of ways. That's right. Uh, I saw a great quote on social media. Here we go. Let's hear it. The only gram in my life today Instagram. is the program. Oh, the program. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was a great quote. Yeah, yeah. The only gram in my life today is the program. There you go. That's all I got. For the happy recap. That's all you got, huh? Yep. Well, that that just about does it then, I would say. Can we slide into our topic? You ready? We ought to slide right into the topic. It looks like an interesting one. So Some more plain analogies mm-hmm. for everybody out there. Yeah, I don't think I've been using my plain analogies enough, so I'm I'm going to be cranking it up now. <laughs> All right. Um, <clears throat> this topic came to me last week via a conversation with a client who had just successfully completed and was now, you know, out there and moving into that you know phase. And and you know we've been on the theme the last couple of shows. We did the postpartum, right? Yeah. And then we did the next show of, of, you know, after the postpartum, you know, when real life sets in, so on and so forth. And the title of the show came to me from the advice that I, I gave to him, which I've given to anyone that I've come into contact with that has completed, you know, successfully completed, and he just happened to be back visiting, Okay. And it was about the pursuit of perfection and how that has caused many to fail or the okay. downfall of many. So the title today is the ill-fated, the topic is the ill-fated pursuit of perfection in recovery. So in my uh, analogy, plane analogy, P-L-A-N-E analogy, as a jet craft aficionado, you're now uh, approaching and settling into the cruise altitude okay. of your recovery, right? The post-treatment recovery phase. Yeah. Uh, and now, as we are in that phase, there's going to be turbulence caused by different things. Okay. Okay. And this particular turbulence is... The person coming out of treatment, especially if it's in a a residential environment, a self-contained environment, but again, it can occur coming out of any treatment environment, and I'm coming out thinking, okay, I'm gung-ho with this recovery thing, I'm serious about it, are they picking up me punching myself? It could be, yeah, good sound effect. Okay. Off the board. I'm I'm gung-ho, I'm serious, I'm ready to go, and I'm going to try and do everything, follow everything that I was taught, use all the tools, and and I fall into the trap of trying to be perfect. When, uh, obviously, and I say obvious, but is it really obvious? Because when you're doing it and when you're living it, it's not obvious, but we can sit here and look from afar and say, well, it's obvious. No one's perfect. Right. Nobody's perfect. There's no perfect human being. There's no one that's perfect in their endeavor. 
They're just continually striving and striving and striving and striving to get there, right? It's true. But I've seen many in the recovery recovery realm make the mistake of trying to be perfect. And as a result of trying to be perfect, slip and fall. So what are some examples of trying to be perfect? I got to go to a meeting every single day. Because if I don't, what's going to happen? I got to occupy all 24 hours, seven days of the week. I got to be occupied doing something. Because if I don't, what's going to happen? I have to... <laughs> um, there's a, there was a name back in the day, old school day top, for a person that was doing a certain thing. I'm, I'm going to use the term. It's not derogatory, and it was not offensive. It wasn't a term of endearment, however, because it was sometimes used to try and smack somebody down, and it was called being Dicky Daytop. Okay. Okay, I don't know if, if, if that was used in your era. I thought you were going to throw the day one dingbat out there. Oh, no, that's totally different. That's <laughs> totally, no, that uh, was used for something totally different. So someone was being, uh, you know, Har- Horace Barnes was familiar with this because he used that a lot, you know, being Dickie Daytop. So so pretend being Dickie Daytop out, you know, you're now out in the world doing your thing and you're you're still being, you're trying to be Dickie Daytop. Uh, yeah, the term that was used in my era for that was just called a daytop robot. Yeah, okay, right. Being 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 robotic in your recovery, perfect. And I don't know how many times I've told people, stop it, stop it. Allow yourself the freedom to 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 make. I mean, allow yourself the freedom to put yourself in positions to make mistakes. Bad decisions. Heaven forbid a human you know, being makes experience mistake. life <laughs> so that you can learn from those experiences. Now, of course, we don't want the ultimate the ultimate choice of someone going back to using right. and relapse. No, we don't want that. That's not what we're talking about. But we're talking about someone doing things that are going to slowly overwhelm them to the point where they may be like ending up with, you know, getting to a certain point, And I'm only saying this because this happens where they get to the point where they utter those two magic words. One begins with an F, one begins with an I. And they just say, bleep it, you know, and boom. Then the train starts rolling real quick. That's it. To the To the pickup spot. So we don't want striving for, I mean, we don't want someone to walk out the door believing that i got to do everything right. Every decision has to be right. I can't make any mistakes because that is not going to be the case. That is certainly not going to be the case. Now, we clarified the difference between someone making a bad decision and someone making a mistake, right? So let's just... Just for clarity of this discussion, right. we're going to go back and just so everyone knows. Decision means you know you know better, you know you know both sides, and you have enough information to make the proper choice, the right That's choice, right. and you choose to make the improper choice or the wrong choice. A mistake means okay, I don't have enough information on either side 
So I'm going to have to make a decision here one way or the other, and it turns out, okay, that was not the right decision. So we learned from it. Now we have experience. We know that's not the right way to go. We, we learn, and then in the future, if that same scenario presents itself again, I now know if I now have enough information to make a better decision. So that's the difference between decision and mistake. Choice and mistake. Choosing and mistake. So I told the gentleman, I said, look, while you're out there, I hope, you, I hope you're going to choose living, i.e., you know, doing what you would normally do to enjoy your life, keyword there, enjoy your life, not be miserable because you're so focused and intent on, I don't want to mess up, I don't want to relapse. I don't want to do anything that's going to, you know, what what have you. That you forget to live. The second I tell one white lie, I'm I'm doomed I'm for done. relapse. I might as well get high tonight. If I if I'll, I'll give you a perfect example, and this came up in a seminar in front of the whole family many years ago about, you know, the number one unwritten philosophy that we have in our program, which is honesty. And. We have people who are on, you know, late phases of treatment and where, they, you know, they go out of the house, they get jobs, and, and they start looking for you know, housing and so on and so forth. And, you know, some people have criminal records and, you know, landlords don't want to rent to them and, you know, blah, 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 blah. So I said, look, you see this unwritten philosophy up there that says honesty? Yes. What do you think, it, what do you think that means? And they tell me their reason. I said, look. When in here, it means we're talking about you being honest with yourself, okay? When you get out into the real world, okay, if you have to put on your housing application something that's going to enable you to not live under the bridge, I'd be the first person to tell you, look, write whatever you have to write, because I'd rather see you in an apartment than under the bridge, okay? Is the world... Then there's this self-contained, surreal environment that we we call the program. Right. Okay. So you got to understand the difference between the two. Now, working with the kids, it's a little bit different because you know their their brains don't stretch that far to understand those two dynamics, right? But the adults, they can understand it. And we say, look, don't think that you're going to go out there and you're going to be you know Mr. Honesty and Mrs. Honesty 100% of the time and for Everything that exists in my life, I'm going to be 100% honest. I said, you will be homeless and jobless. Right. Huh. Yeah. You're going to be homeless and jobless. Oh, you got a you 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 were a drunk you were a drunk driver. Okay. Well. Okay. Well, don't call us. We'll call you. <laughs> All right. Oh, you had check fraud. Oh, okay. Well, I'll let you know if the apartment is available. I'll give you a call next week. Yeah. So no, I want you to have a place to live. I want you to 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 become employed, and so we you do what you need to do in order to survive in the world. Okay. So we we have to kind of make that clear. Okay. And uh, that you know speaks to that point of well, you know being perfect and being being true and and to the recovery 100%. You know, I, if I have to lie. And my hands are in quotes, folks. If I have to be lie, or as my mother would say, tell an untruth. <laughs> That's good. I've heard that one too before. Uh, about 
you know, a, a little bit about my record so that I can find some place to live for myself and my children, you know, how's that going to make me feel? I said, I don't care how it makes you feel. Deal with how it makes you feel because I don't want you to be living under a bridge. Period. <laughs> right. So if you have to lie to get the apartment, lie. Well, two months ago when I was in the dining room and we were talking that had the seminar on honesty, <laughs> you know, all you were talking about was, you know, honesty, honesty, honesty. Right. So we have to explain the dynamic and what we mean in terms of real world, self-contained program world, that these things are going to come up. And the striving to be perfect in all of these facets, again, jobless, homeless, don't want that. So I also said to this gentleman, I said, by the way, I gave him a, a, a Ralph Cramden, by the way, do you know where this usually surfaces its ugly head, this pursuit, ill-fated pursuit of perfection? I said it usually rears its ugly heads in your inter, I-N-T-E-R, and your intra, I-N-T-R-A, personal relationships. So whether it be your friends and extended family or your intimate relationships, spouse, girlfriend, significant others, etc. You come out of your treatment setting, you've learned certain things about feelings, articulating them, understanding how they work, how they encompass you in various experiences. What I mean by that is like, so if someone punched you in the nose, what you would emotionally feel after getting punched in the nose, you know, the order in which the feelings would come, Yeah. even though you think the Instant reaction is anger that someone punched you in the nose is actually something else. A couple of things that may occur depending on the scenario. You know, you might have to get embarrassed first. You know, your feelings may get hurt, and then the anger comes out. But in a split second, you fly past those two, and you get right to the anger to, to defend yourself, right? But my wife said it best, and I'm sure there are many spouses out there of daytop alumni, OCG alumni, and other program alumni that have said the same thing, okay? And it ties into this pursuit of perfection. You go through the program, and I'm going to get to what my wife said, but you go, I have to set it up. So you go through the program, and you learn all these things in reference to yourself and how, how to express your feelings, articulate them, understand them, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and... You then, and I've I've counseled people against this, okay? You now have an intimate understanding of how feelings work, not only with yourself, but with other people. And you think you're going to go out into the real world and in your inter and interpersonal relationships, try and use it to your advantage. Okay? Mm-hmm. And I always caution and counsel don't do it because you're going to get smacked down. Right. My wife once said, <laughs> don't use that daytop crap on me 24 and a half years ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So she got it in very early in the relationship. 
she she set that boundary quick. Very early. Not going save, for that daytop crap. You can save all that psychobabble for your work. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. That stuff is not working here. So I always counsel people the same thing. Look, don't take this stuff into your relationship thinking it's going to work. Uh, no. It is not going to work. Okay? Don't try and use it to your advantage. It doesn't work that way. As a matter of fact, the only place it may not work is there. Now, it may work in your inter, meaning outside your intimate relationships, to help you deal with maybe some difficulties, but it's not going to work in your intra, the intimate relationships. So sometimes we the person in recovery recovery gets out there into their intrapersonal relationships with intimate ones and they try and be perfect in the relationship in that realm. And it backfires. And they don't realize, well wait a second, you know, I know these feelings, blah 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 blah, but it's backfiring on them. They're trying to be perfect rather than being human. You know, being human means you get upset, your feelings get hurt, you experience frustration, rejection, you know, anger, fear, loneliness, all these things you still experience. Just because you went through a treatment program doesn't mean you don't experience these feelings anymore. Right. You're a human being. You're going to experience these feelings. Exactly. The only thing that you learn is to identify what they are, how to cope with them, talk about them, etc., Excuse me a second. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. No, that. Uh... But um, I was reaching for something. So you just, you know, you learn these things, and it doesn't mean that just because you get out to the real world that you're, you you stop experiencing them as a human. But some, what happens is they they almost become a third person, like they start experiencing them in the third person, you know, the feelings like, oh, this is what I'm experiencing. So when they then are relating to the person, they're not relating as themselves. They're relating like there's a third party in the room. Right. You know what I mean? And so the other person picks up, especially in the intimate relationship, picks up on this. They're like, what the hell are you talking about? (laughs) Right. You're not really really expressing your feelings. You're just like talking in the third part and third person about feelings. Right. So that's part of the perfection that, you know, happens either consciously or subconsciously. And no, we don't we don't want that because your relationship is going to go downhill very quickly. <laughs> that's true. Um, Felix Arroyo, one of my mentors and trainers when I was a staff trainee, said one time, "Just because you go through." Treatment and you enter into recovery, and you know you're moving on with your life. You're walking down Fifth Avenue, a few maybe ten feet in front of you, somebody's smoking a joint. It doesn't mean that you can't say to yourself, or if you're walking with someone, "Hey, you smell that." Smells good. Doesn't mean that you want to do it. Doesn't mean that you like to do it. You're just acknowledging a reality. If that's you know to you personally, I'm not saying that is the case. I'm just as an example. Oh, right. That smells right. good. He says you got to be human. 
you don't run across the street, oh, my God, that guy's smoking marijuana and it's whiffing back this way. I don't want the smell to get into my body. Let me cross the street. Yeah, try crossing the street in midtown Manhattan. Okay? He's like, no, you got to be human, man. You don't stop living. That's right. You go back around, or let's say you, you know you return back around the way to your to where you're going to live. And remember, we've talked about in other shows about encountering, and 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 callers have brought this up, encountering my old friends, my old peers that I may have used with, etc. And do you want to be a, a peer to be perfect? Around them, I mean that's the easiest way to piss somebody off. Oh yeah. To give the impression that you know you're better than. Come across like a condescending jerk. Exactly. And we teach that hey, rule number one: remember where you came from. Remember where you came from. Be humble because you were once where they may currently be. That's such a. That's such an interesting point and kind of awesome that you brought it up because that was one of my first experiences in, um, when I had come out of the program and I had a job working at Warehouse Music. It was a CD. I don't even know if people listen to CDs anymore, but it was a store that sold CDs. The now defunct Warehouse Music. That's right. And... um you know, there were people that I worked with who uh, drank or uh, people that I worked with who may have smoked marijuana. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember I was living transitionally, and there was a there was a graduate who was a staff member uh, who was working there at the time. And I remember coming to him and saying, it's it's interesting having gone through the program into the real world and having conversations with people who are around my age who are still doing what I now consider to be really immature, kind of below me type things. And I know this is a bad story for the radio because you can't see my hands. Uh, Maybe the host can describe it or I'll try and describe it. And he said, well, what do you mean? And I said, well, I feel like everybody else is here. And so I had my hand. His hands are very low. Yeah, low. And then... (laughs) I'm here. His hand went very high. You know, like I, like I, just like you said, condescending, like like you're above people. Mm-hmm. And he said, kind of exactly what you're saying. Look, you know what? Because we learned what we learned, or you're doing what you're doing, doesn't make you better than anybody. Mm-hmm. And I was not even aware that I had done that with mm-hmm. my hands and what kind of message that sent. Mm-hmm. And he said, well, if you think about that, like, and you should take a look and think about maybe that's how you're viewing yourself because of what you've been through, as opposed to saying, and then he told me that you're here and people are over here. Mm-hmm. You're just on a different wavelength, so to right. speak. And um, yeah, and so when you were touching on that, it reminded me of that was kind of like one of my first kind of lessons going out that, hey, you know what, just because you've made a decision to change the way you were living does not mean you're better than anyone else who's choosing to live the way they're living. Mm-hmm. And and that made a lot of sense to me at the time. So when you're saying all this, it kind of uh, – it, it reminds me of that. It, it brings that up. Yeah, it's, a, it's a, a dangerous attitude to adopt. And sometimes, as you said, it doesn't all, all often happen consciously. Yeah. It, it sometimes happens subconsciously just because of your – um, 
feeling good about what you have done. Right. Okay. Right. And not realizing that what what's may creep in or what has crept in or what might creep in is thinking that because of that that you're somehow better than someone who might still be where you once were. That's exactly right. Right. So there, many times, you know, back back in the day, in old school daytop, when we were driving in the van throughout the city, far Rockaway, and on the way back upstate, and you know, I would, you know, we would see people who were still in the life, and, and I always point them out and say, look, remember, you know, we were once there. That's right. We were once there. So don't look down on people just because you got a few months of treatment, clean time, and clean air, and you know, fresh air under your belt, that you know you're better than them. Okay. That, as a matter of fact, starts to set up this perfection, this you know, this ill-fated pursuit of perfection. That I, I, I'm so much better. That's so right. I'm so much better that you know, wow, no, that can't happen. Um, and you know, the universe has a way of taking care of those things mm-hmm. and humbling, humbling us uh-huh. if we uh, consciously or subconsciously. Get there, and sometimes the humbling. I repeat, sometimes the humbling is not pleasant. Sometimes it could be that ultimate humbling, the the ultimate uh, turbulence, that that relapse, that that pickup, that causes that will cause a person to have to take a harder look at themselves. Wait a second, was I really who I thought I was? Did I really, you know, accomplish what I thought I did? Did I miss something? Well, yes, you did. So, in the pursuit of perfection, usually the end result is, or let's actually rephrase, the ill-fated pursuit of perfection, usually the end result is not just turbulence in the recovery period, but relapse. Mm-hmm. And that's what we want to avoid. We want to avoid that, ultimately. So, you know, hopefully when a person, when you know, as we interact with people who are, you know, have entered, you know, newly into the realm of recovery, that we can, um, we spot it, we can just, by talking to them, get a feel for how things are going in their life. And if we sense that there's any, you know, you know, I got to do everything right type of, uh, of attitude, um, correct it. You know, that's our role. As providers, as uh, counselors, we ha- we have to correct that um, because it's simple to state, obvious to state. We know there is no perfection, but it creeps in subconsciously. So, all right, I think right now is about the right time to take a mid-topic quick break, and then we'll come back and close it out before we head to our uh, recovery support time. We can certainly do that. Let's make it happen. All right. You hear that? What you won't do, you do for love. You'll try anything, but you won't give up. 
That's the attitude you need to have in recovery. You've got to love or learn to love yourself first. You've got to be willing to try anything that will help you succeed. And most importantly, you can never give up. Visit us at ocgworks.org. OCG, where hope grows. What you won't do to do for love. You tried everything, but you don't give up. The Children's Health Council in Palo Alto has been serving children, youth, and teens in San Mateo and Santa Clara counties, as well as the greater San Francisco Bay Area, for over 60 years. The goal of the agency is to remove barriers to learning, regardless of language, location, learning style, or ability to pay. At CHC, we specialize in ADHD, learning differences, anxiety and depression, and autism through our center, two schools, and community clinic. No matter how big or small the issue is, just call us and we'll help you navigate your child's journey together. Visit our website at www.chconline.org or call us at area code 650-688-3625. Again, that's area code 650-688-3625. At CHC, we're here for you. And CHC, estamos aquí para usted. Welcome back to Roach on Recovery, 646 is the number, and we're just going to close out on our show topic of today, the ill-fated pursuit of perfection. <clears throat> Using my flying analogy once again, uh, oftentimes when you're at cruising altitude, 39,000 feet, and you run into some turbulence, the captain will usually ask the whatever air traffic control location they're at, whoever they're communicating with, um, based on communications from other pilots who you know, are way out in front of them, um, or below them or above them, you know, what's, what's the ride like? Yeah. You know, at if they're, they're let's say they're at thirty nine thousand, they'll say, "What's the ride at thirty eight? What's the ride at forty one? If the aircraft has that capacity to go to forty one, and they'll say, "Ah, still choppy at choppy at thirty eight, chop choppy at thirty six. You want to go to thirty four? I'm like, damn, I got to drop from thirty nine down to thirty four, five thousand feet to get to smooth. But they're always concerned about giving you a smooth ride. Yeah, no different than when you're in your recovery realm. Okay. You might be cruising along at 39,000 feet and you hit some turbulence. And sometimes you got to drop down a few thousand feet to get down to a smooth ride. And that dropping down is becoming aware. To be aware is to be alive. How many times have I said that? Plenty. Right? Being aware of what's going on, what you're doing, how you're approaching things. Am I using the tools correctly? As Horace Barnes would say, am I trying to be a dicky day top? 
or what what they say in your daytime in your in your time daytop robot or trying to be a daytop robot. We got to come up with a name for OCG. Okay, so we'll, hey, we'll, we'll that's, work that's on that. That's our task. We have to come up with a name. You know, are you trying to be perfect? Well, if you on your own, and it's wonderful if it does happen, determine that that's what's occurring. Then yeah, you got to bring it down. You got to turn it down a notch. Just Joe, the late, the late great Joe Williams, one of his favorite sayings: "Turn it down a notch." So you okay. got to turn it down a notch and say, "Hey, I got to stop trying to be perfect. Let me start living. It's okay. It's okay if I make a bad choice, as long as it's not a life-altering choice." life-altering decision or the ultimate bad decision. It's okay if I make a mistake for lack of information. We're all ignorant of various things and we still have to make decisions and then we become knowledgeable as a result, right? After you make the decision, you learn, you become knowledgeable. Hope so. Right? So that's all part of being human and living and, 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 and not trying to escape you know, the consequences of life. You know what I mean? Yeah. So we have to constantly, constantly, and we're speaking to not people who are in the treatment setting, but we're speaking to people who are out there in in the real world. And when they come back, we have to constantly make sure that they are living their life and not trying to be a robot to the cause a robot to recovery. There you go. A, ro- a re- recovery robot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That is not what we want. We want human beings, people that feel and express it and, and, and do all the things that they, and experience all the things that, you know, good, bad, and ugly. You can experience all of that and none of it ends up with someone relapsing. You know, from loss to losing a job to, I mean, to having, you know, you know, relationships not going the way you wanted to and just, you know, all kinds of things. You know, or like the Yankees not having a winning season or no chance of having a winning season. The Knicks not winning a championship in the last 50 years. Who knows what the Jets are going to do this year and and, and the New York football Giants. You know, stuff like that. (laughs) Right, right. That can cause a person to just, you know, go crazy. Anything else? I think I'm off topic. Anything else? (laughs) Any other... (laughs) But you know what I mean, folks. Don't chase perfection in recovery. There's no such thing. It'll cause you to end up where you should not be. That's my final note on that topic. Got me talking about the Yankees. Got me all upset already. <laughs> Beautiful. Uh, yeah, you know what? Um, I completely agree. I think that One thing to note, at least for me, something that I would like to put out there is that there is a purpose or a reason as to why we blow up the picture as much as we do, Mm -hmm. where we're trying to push you to an extreme on the other side, simply to combat the extreme that you came in living from the other side. Mm -hmm. And so the world is not going to change that you go back into, and there will still be extreme challenges, so to speak. And so I've always looked at it as 
kind of like a, a seesaw or a balancing beam, right? And you were completely weighted down on one end of that thing, and we are trying to put as much weight as we can on the other end and send you out like that. So hopefully you can come to a balance in the middle mm-hmm. as you find out what your own personal boundaries are and what you're okay with. So um, obviously, like you said, the goal is for us to send out people and that that's what you will become. But to have that kind of extreme to the other end built into you when you go through a program is simply to combat what has happened before. And I think there's a there's a place for that or there's a reason for that that, that shouldn't be overlooked. Um, lastly, randomly, I think I may have thought of one for OCG. All right, let's hear it. Don't be an OCG referee. Throwing the flag on every little, calling fouls <laughs> on every little, you know. <laughs> Don't be an OCG referee, man. You got sometimes you got to let stuff go. Let them play. I'm going to uh, formally submit that one for consideration to the panel. <laughs> you got to let them play uh, every once we'll, in a while. We'll let our listeners know if that one gets approved. That's a good one. The OCG referee. Let the players dictate the game uh, at the end. I, I'm not sure if it has the same. Uh, Rhyme or vibe as Dicky Daytop, or oh. uh, or in your era the Daytop Robot, um, but uh, the OCG referee is definitely uh, will be under strong consideration. Good job <laughs> on the fly, on the air, on the fly, on the air. I had to get it out there. Okay, good stuff, good stuff. All right, I think we can uh, close out our topic for today, and uh, let's take a quick uh, music break, and then come back on the other side with our recovery support time. Sounds good. And it looks like we do see that there are some people holding on the other end. So we will get back to you or get with you as soon as we get back from this break. Me. 
Roach on Recovery is a program of OCG Radio. It deals with many topics related to substance abuse, substance abuse treatment, and recovery. Our recovery support time is a show segment where you can receive support from our host for any questions or issues you wish to present related to substance abuse, substance abuse treatment, or recovery. You can reach our host live by calling 646-564-9909. That's 646-564-9909. Or you can send your questions via email at any time to ocgworkca at gmail.com. That's ocgworkca at gmail.com. And our host will respond to your questions on the air. Roach on Recovery. Recovery support time. A time for us to help you.
Okay, welcome back to Roach on Recovery, 646. 646-564-9909. Stop playing with me. I've been waiting all week to do that, folks. <laughs> Is the number, uh, before we get to the phones, can we go to the X-Files real quick for a couple? Absolutely. Okay. I got two good questions here, so I want to get to those real quick first. Um, oh, interesting. There's no name. I just noticed that. So, no name, no hometown. Do you feel that there comes a, a time that a person benefits more from therapy than a treatment program? My answer would be yes. That sometimes... Uh, Going through a, a treatment program, regardless of setting, modality, milieu, that uh, a person needs to, because of the issues they may have, continue on with therapy, whether it be couples, family, or individual, to uh, facilitate healing, further digging, um, etc. And sometimes just the, the the length of treatment is just not long enough to uh, really um, facilitate that. So, especially in today's treatment world, absolutely, we more often than not we recommend um, people who have you know traumatic issues uh, for them to continue um, therapy outside and post uh, their treatment. Uh, now, also just in case, the question is whether or not therapy versus being in a treatment setting, you know, people often try both. I mean, sometimes someone goes through treatment and it doesn't take for whatever reason. They go into private therapy and, you know, that doesn't take, um, and I'm using the expression that doesn't take with quotes, um, because whether or not either or takes is always dependent on the person and, and how much they are giving up, participating, etc. Um, and also, you know, a little bit of the skill of the therapist and or counselor. You can't can't discount that. That that's important. Also, no different than the skill of a doctor, a surgeon, etc. Um, not everyone has the same skill level. So, a skilled therapist may be able to um, pull more out, help you know, elicit more uh, talking and sharing. Than another, um, same thing with with a counselor. So, you know, depending on what the issue is, what a person is struggling in, uh, you know, one environment may, may be better than the other. But who knows? Uh, more often than not, uh, people are doing both, especially in today's treatment world. Programs are providing both the traditional treatment setting and therapy simultaneously. So. I hope that answered the question and didn't confuse it even more. Uh, the second one from the X-Files I want to do before we hit the phones real quick, uh, which I think is an interesting question. This is from Henry uh, at EPA. Is there such a thing as treatment dependency? In other words, is there a point or a condition that exists uh, from repeated visits to treatment and, and inability to survive without it? I think that's an interesting question. 
um, almost like I, I call sometimes jokingly people who are professional students, like they just never, ever finish school and they're just going forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Um, I mean, for us, we don't allow treatment dependency to take in. I'm just speaking for OCGs, and we would never allow that. So, <clears throat> uh, but to his point or his question, is there such a thing as treatment dependency? Um, I'm not sure that there is because when you're in the treatment setting, there's something being required of you while you're there. Right. It's, it's not. Uh, it's not a holding tank. You know what I'm saying? You know, it's not a detox where you're just going to sit there and and be <clears throat> detoxed or you know just hanging out. You know, the treatment setting requires participation, requires uh, you know functioning in ver on various levels. And so, if you go through a program and 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 don't succeed at your recovery attempt, and then come back into a program. You can, the same things are going to be asked of you as before, if not more. So I'm not sure if a person can can really become dependent on that, meaning like, oh, I can't survive without the structure of a program. Right. Mm. It's similar, I guess, to thinking about someone that may have been Jail. in prison a long time and becomes, quote, unquote, institutionalized. Yes. They require that structure in order to live and survive. Right. <clears throat> the only difference is, which we say all the time, is we don't have any bars or locks on our windows, locks on our doors. You can leave whenever you want. And most treatment settings are like that. You right. can leave whenever you want. So that's the difference. You, In jail, in prison, you're you're not in control of being able to leave whenever you want. And there are bars on your window, locks on your doors. So it's primarily up to you whether you stay or go. We're not going to put you in a headlock or enforce you to do anything. So even if you are, and we we get people coming from prison and jail, and they, and they have been there a long time, and they are institutionalized. And so the structure of the program is very easy for them. It's familiar to them in terms of you know getting up at a certain time and doing this and doing that. But guess what, folks? That's only half of the battle. You know, that's one of the reasons why when, you know, when we give out quote-unquote learning experiences, when people violate rules in the treatment setting and you give them a learning experience, something for them to do to make up their violation to the community. And for someone who we know, you can send them out back you know, and for those of you who are from Daytop and, you know, remember the Upstate facilities, Clarksville, Swan Lake, and you might be outside and you might have to dig a hole, you know, five foot deep by five foot wide, and it'll take you all day to dig. Well, there's some people who have no problem doing that. They can do that all day, every day. But they have a problem talking about themselves. They have a problem sharing. They have a problem opening up. Right. And so I say, hey, no, you're not going to do any manual labor. Right, right, right. You're going to be sitting at this table, and people are going to be coming up to you all day long. We're going to be talking. We're going to be chatting. We're going to be – we want some sharing coming out of you. Time to open up. See, that's hard for some folks. But they can work and work the structure all day long. Right. So that that's what makes treatment a little bit, if not a lot, different. I would agree. Okay. So – 
My answer would be no. There's no such thing as dependency on treatment. I would agree. All right. With, with your agreement, I guess we can move to the phones then. We can move forward. <laughs> okay. Uh, let's go to uh, Michael from Foster City. Michael, welcome. Hi. How are you doing? Good. Um, I had a question. Um, sure. Um, let's see. I wanted a little advice. Um, along with a sponsor and Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, uh, I guess you want 90 meetings in 90 days is what they normally look for. And um, I've suggested um, I'm 42 years old and have a, a pretty bad alcohol alcoholism. Um, and I'm wondering, along with... Uh, AA and a sponsor, what do you recommend? Is there anything else that you can recommend? Okay, you confused me with your first um, statement. What, what did you mean by the 90 meetings in 90 days? What was that? Is, um, is that well, like that's, a, what heard, that's what I've heard as far as uh, AA. They said try to attend 90 meetings in 90 days. You've never heard that? Yeah, the yeah, 90 and 90. yeah. I, I've heard that. But in reference to you, though, are you asking like if whether or not that would be a good thing for you post treatment, or are you asking? What, uh, yeah, would that be would that be good post treatment? Uh, and as far as uh, staying sober, and what else as far as lifestyle changes or anything you can recommend uh, as far as staying sober? I'm 42 years old, and I'm looking never to drink again. How long How long have you been drinking? Since I was uh, 16. Okay, so long long term alcoholic, would you say? Yes, sir. Okay. the The first part of your question about things you can do is well, in the treatment setting, normally we start working on changing our habits and our behaviors and so on and so forth. I have to be upfront with you. De- dealing with alcoholism is a beast because it's in your face out there. It's advertised yes. on TV. It's on the billboards. It's in the magazines. I mean, you can't run. You can't hide from it. Yep. So a person really has to be committed to their sobriety, to yes, war, right. to be able to deal with and ward off all of those things that are just like just in your face. Know what I mean? I do. I do, sir. So, yeah, I, I would say because since we, we don't get the time that we used to get in the treatment setting where the person has, you know, eight months, a year or whatever to really work on changing their behavior, changing their habits, changing their attitude while being sober at the same time, that, yes, I would say 90 meetings in 90 days, you know, going to a meeting a day is a good preventative tool while you're working through that process of getting strong in your recovery. Okay. I would I, w- I would agree with that. Oh, wonderful. And then I um, would agree with go. that. Okay. Well, thank you for your answer and then go from there um with a sponsor and do the steps and uh and uh just uh like they say stick with the winners, huh? Stick with the winners and I know it's a cliche, but one day at a time. Just okay. deal with one day. Today. Will do. Okay, Mike? All right, sir. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay, bye. That's a uh, 
you're always concerned about the long-term alcoholic. Well, I mean, we've been talking about my brother, so I mean, but the long-term alcoholics, um, man, that's a beast. You can't even sit down and watch a, any sporting event on television without yeah, it get, being thrown in your face, and yep. or read a, a magazine, a card magazine, a sporting magazine, or anything you know for for guys, you know at least uh, without it being in your face. So you really got to be committed. You sure do to to the sobriety to 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 ward off all of these things. Yeah, going grocery it's like shopping. Like being attacked. You know what I mean? Yeah. Look at going grocery shopping, having to avoid aisles. You see the aisle, heaven forbid. Oh, mm-hmm. my goodness. And especially in the liquor section where you can almost smell the stuff through the... Yeah. People buy stuff by the cases. I always look in their shopping carts like, oh, wow, how, 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 in what period of time are you going to drink that? <laughs> tonight right, or... Tonight. <laughs> <laughs> my goodness. All right, let's go to... Uh, um, let's go to... What do we got here? Kimberly from Foster City. No, Half Moon Bay. Welcome. Hi. How you doing? Hi. Good. What's your um, question? How can we help you? Oh, my question was, um, I had one debauch with at 17 where I got drunk and blacked out. After that um, had happened, I had swore that I'd never let that happen again. Um, at 19, I got married, and then 20, I had a daughter, and I didn't drink. And then through those years, I'd have a drink here and there. But when I hit 37... And my daughter was out of the house. Um, I went on a binge for like three months, and it was so awful that I had the DTs and hallucinations. I did go into recovery, um, but unfortunately, um, I had about three years, and then I switched over to using meth. And my question is, can alcoholism and addiction just surface at any time? I mean, does it have to be a certain amount of years or you know what I mean? I mean, I know I'm an alcoholic because I can't drink. I, I definitely go into a blackout. And the I know I can't use drink, drugs either. Your, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Your answer to your uh, question is is yes. It, it can strike at any age. It can. It can strike at any age. But ultimately, ultimately it doesn't matter because when when we make a decision that we're going to address it, uh-huh. And live a life of sobriety. Obviously, the younger the better. So, I mean, if if you said, well, at 37 is when I kind of started. Uh, well, you had a period of time there, you know, during your younger years where you weren't abusing alcohol. Mm-mm, and then mm-hmm. 37, boom, something you know explodes. Yeah. Okay? And then you have a period of time where you are abusing alcohol. Well, yeah. here's a here's here's a positive way to look at it, okay? That mm-hmm. at least I wasn't abusing alcohol from age 17 all the way to whatever age I am now. There was a period of time in there, a significant period of time where I wasn't. That yeah. saved me. That saved me some, you know, physical, psychological, mental, emotional stress. So mm-hmm. all I have to worry about now is, is okay. I've had now a period of time where I was abusing alcohol. I'm now mm-hmm. working on being sober, and that's all I'm doing. I look forward, not backwards. Okay. That's all it is. It's about looking forward. And, and the caller we had before you, similar thing, long-term drinking, alco- alcoholism, and the same advice. We focus one day at a time. Okay. And when today's over, we work on tomorrow. Okay. Okay. 
Yeah, thank you. You work very welcome. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye. God bless you. You too. A lot of calls on alcohol today. That's it. That's it. All right, let's go to. Uh, I want to go back to the X Files, sir. I got some good questions today. Let's go to them. Let's knock some more out. We got a. We got a bunch, I think. Right. Yep. Um. Melissa, what, uh, from Pacifica. Why are so many individuals intimidated by doing a personal inventory? And specifically, the fourth step of AA. Now, we know that the fourth step is um, that a person has made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves, i.e., looking in the mirror. Who am I? That's right. Who am I really? An honest inventory. Because it's hard. Is one of the hardest things to ask a human being to do. So Very that's true. Why, that's why a lot of people get, people get stuck on the fourth step, and for a multitude of reasons. Yeah, and so sometimes they skip. Or I'll come back to I'll come back to the fourth step. They we'll do five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, and they got to circle back around to number four, and then we're just sitting there at four, and tapping, you know, tapping your desk, tapping your your dresser drawer. What am I going to do about number four? Well. You can't run from you. You follow you wherever you go. All these cliches. At some point, you have to deal with yourself. So that's what the fourth step is about. Looking in the mirror and saying, all right, who am I truly, really, honestly? It's and, an intimidating yeah, prospect. It, it is. And I tell people all the time, and, and, and this is not in the 12-step realm, even though in our program we do have 12 step. Um, groups, but just in recovery period, I said, look, what we're going to ask you to do is one of the hardest things for any human being to do, which is to look at yourself honestly. Look at what your character flaws are, your weaknesses are, your strengths, your abilities, your needs, your aptitudes, etc., and make decisions based on all of that in terms of how are you going to, who are you going to be moving forward it's very hard i don't care what age you are whether you're an adolescent adult it's very hard to do but you must do it you must do it it's yeah probably the most necessary step which is part of i guess what makes it so challenging yep uh we got another one in the x files real quick Urges. How do I stop them? Huh. Aren't, aren't we? Aren't you and I working on that pill? <laughs> yeah, that's our million-dollar uh, idea. We can work. We're, we're trying to find something to stop the cravings. Urges aren't. You know, they they they'll diminish, um, and ultimately go away. But I believe, and this is just my opinion, don't quote me that this is science, I believe the urges are directly correlated to a person's desire and commitment for change. Okay. That's just my opinion. Sure. 
because the reason I arrive at that opinion is when someone says, hey, yeah, I still feel like using, I always say, okay, well, why? Because we're going to dig now. Why do you feel like using? And the answer is not because I feel like using. What's the reason you feel like using? And so we dig down deep. We get the backhoe out, and we start digging to get down there, and then we get to the bottom of that answer. And when you get to the bottom of that answer, we then work our way back up. And and the and the hope is on the on the on the uptake, on the working the way back up, that the person gets to a point where that desire, that urge is eliminated because simultaneously they're coming to a point where they're ready to now make a commitment. And as I said long time ago, one of our early shows, when a person makes a commitment to change, a commitment to living a positive and constructive lifestyle, it is almost a spiritual feeling. I, it's undis- I can't describe it. I can't put it into words. But you know when it has occurred. You don't have to talk about it. You don't have to preach to anyone about it. You don't have to put it on the morning meeting board. You know when it has happened. So you feel a weight coming off your shoulder. You feel at peace. And your focus becomes now on Okay, what do I need to do to get my life back in order, get my family back, get back my employment back, to go to school, you know, whatever it is, all these positive things to get get back on track becomes a focus, not whether or not I'm going to stay clean and sober. I've already decided that. I'm committed in that area. So all my 100% of my energy goes towards recovery. Right. I know I just went off on a tangent. Sorry. It was a good tangent, it, 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 but that makes a lot of sense. It's what, once you, like you said, if you've made up your mind that at the that this is no longer going to happen, now I need to focus on everything that's going to round that out and make mm-hmm. that happen for me. So oh, I think that was good. Uh, another one from Melissa, and, and this is a good one. I like this one. How can you make amends with a person who has died? I believe when we were looking at this question before the show, I made a comment the same way you make amends with someone who's still alive. Yeah, do you want to elaborate a little bit on that? Yeah, I think that it begins with you. Exactly. So when no it's matter not about, it's not about the other person. Yeah, no matter who, what, where, when, why, or how you're planning on making amends with something or somebody, you have to forgive yourself first, mm-hmm. and that can be done whether or not. You can contact the person, whether the person's maybe they're still alive, but you can't contact them because they you don't have their number. They live out of state. They live out of the country. Maybe they have passed away, but it it needs to begin with you. And once you have forgiven yourself, whatever it is that you're looking to make amends for, you can be at peace spiritual because mm-hmm. we're all human. We all make mistakes. How do you make amends with somebody who you go to try to make amends with and they say no? <laughs> I don't forgive you. you know, same Take kind of that. Yeah, same thing. Right. So that's why we say the re the reason we say it's all about you is so that you don't set yourself up with the expectation that it that it depends on another person. Right. For you to be at peace with making amends with whomever for whatever reason, whether they're here on earth or or not here on earth. Because you can encounter someone that you need to make amends with, and they hear you out. They listen to your whole speech, your whole, you know, 
your your regrets, your remorse. Yeah. And when you're done, they say something that you absolutely did not want to hear. Then what are you left with? Where are you left? Right. When we do the seminar on Encounter Group, teaching the clients, you know, the purpose of Encounter Group, one of the main things I talk about is about expectations and how the group is for you, not for the other person, because you can say everything that you want to say, and at the end, the person utters those two magic words. One begins with an F, one begins with a Y, and what are you, what are you left with? Right. If, you're, if, you, if your whole world is dependent on their answer. Right. Okay. Um, phones or continued X-Files? Let's, uh, let's go to maybe one more X-File. I'm going to screen a, a call here real quick. Okay. Uh, let's see. Kevin wants to know why is it important to develop patience and tolerance in recovery? Well, patience is important because change is not going to happen overnight, my friend. And sometimes, here's that word again, expectations. People think, oh, magically I'm in a program for 30 days and I'm going to change, you know, I'm magically going to change what I've been doing, how I've been thinking for the last 15 years. It's not the way it works. So it does require patience to allow time for change to take place, physical change, attitudinal change, emotional change, all of that requires patience. The tolerance part, okay, can be the tolerance. I'm not sure what he specifically means, but just in me looking at it, there needs to be tolerance about myself, right? I got to be able to tolerate and look at who I am honestly and and say, okay, that's that's who I was. That's what I did. You know, that that's my dirt, and be able to accept that and tolerate that, and also in others. Because in the treatment setting, especially, uh, and I'm going to use especially twice, especially if you're in a co-ed environment, you're going to hear things that bring up a lot of feelings in people, okay, from their, from their experiences, terrible experiences. And people have to be very tolerant, respectful, compassionate, and considerate of those experiences. And that's one of the things that we value about the treatment setting and we try and maintain, and that's all part of that word we use, the environment being safe, where people can be compassionate, considerate, and tolerant, so that people feel that they have the the they they can be free to share. Because certainly if that's not what the environment feels like, people aren't going to share. If people don't feel like there is tolerance in the environment where they can be honest about who they are and what they've experienced, then what do you have? You don't have a, a safe environment, and no safe environment, no treatment is going to take place. It's as blunt as that. All right. Break from the X-Files. <laughs> back, back to the real deal. All right. Let's go to... Susie from Oakland. Welcome. Hi. Thank you for taking my call. You're welcome. I, I was curious about um, what the success rate is of taking antabuse in conjunction with, um, you know, basic recovery tools and things like that for alcoholism. 
You know, I haven't heard anti-abuse in a long time. And it, it used to be, and I'm, I know it's still around, but, um, I mean, for really severe, severe alcoholics where, I mean, in order to save their lives, meaning like you cannot drink, they would prescribe anti-abuse so that, you know, we know it, for the sake of our audience, if you're on anti-abuse and you drink, boom, what happens? You Throw up, right? Yeah. <laughs> you get violently very sick. Ill, yeah. yeah, you get violently ill, right? So, um, in terms of, so yeah, I mean, at least from my recollection, it that's when they would prescribe it when it was like absolutely, look, this person cannot no longer drink, and even if they they themselves are cannot control it, we have to put them on this medication so that if they did drink, this is what would happen. But in terms of a, if you so if a person wasn't in that category, normally they wouldn't prescribe the abuse. I'm not sure if that answered your question. Oh, it does. Yes, yes. Okay. My my doctor did prescribe it for me. I have not started taking it yet, but I was just curious in terms of okay. background information and stuff. So, okay. okay. Well, thank thank you no, very we much. We don't we don't want you getting violently ill now. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for your time. You're very welcome. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. I have not heard the antibus mentioned in years. Yeah, a long time. Years, because with all the new stuff, Ivitrol and all the other stuff they got now. Um, so, all right, let's go to uh, James from San Mateo. Welcome. Yeah, hello? <clears throat> Hi, James. Welcome. Hey, how you doing? Uh, I, w- I have a question. Uh, I was just wondering, what would be the most, a uh, successful type of rehabilitation, like such as like a social modification program or a behavioral modification or a 12-step program, which one do you think has got like the most successful rate? They all do. It depends on the person. Okay, so you're just saying basically just different cup of tea for a different person. So some people... There's really not much distinction between the when they use the term behavioral modification. If you're in a residential environment, the whole goal is being outside, you know, being away from the real world and in a separate environment where you can work on changing your behavior and changing your attitude and so on and so forth. So to me, all, all of those environments, residential type environments, they all work to change behavior and change attitude. So when you're outside of that, so someone that might just be doing AA or NA, okay, they really have to be committed to it because the support is the commitment to the 12 steps and then the people that are around you supporting you as you go through the 12-step process and beyond. Right. And there are people who do both, mm-hmm. you know? There are people who do both. There are people who are alcoholics. They go through residential treatment, and they also do AA and NA on the, you know, simultaneously because one, they want to do that, and two, they love the fellowship. Right. You know what I'm saying? So it's really ultimately depends on the person, what is a good fit for them, and their commitment. Because okay. if you're ready to change and you're ready to do, a, you know, have a a change of direction in your life doesn't make a difference which which program you go into. You're going to succeed. 
That's right. And I also heard, like, uh, no matter where they're going to put you or what type of program it is, if you're really willing to change, you'll do basically anything to do it. You'll, 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 you'll do it. You'll succeed. All right. Thank you so much, man. I answered my question. You're very welcome. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. They used to make a lot of distinction, social model, behavior modification. To me, if you're in a residential program, they're all trying to accomplish the same goal. That's right. You know, change your behavior, change your attitude. The old, the old daytop acronym, do as you're told or pack. That's right. That's right. I always, you know, I heard it said one time from somebody in recovery 10 years ago, maybe, and it stuck with me, and I still agree with it. it and it's kind of what you told the caller. It's a, about the individual. Mm-hmm. If an individual is ready and committed to change, it doesn't matter what program you put them in, it's going to work. Right. And if and on the other side of the coin, if someone is not ready to change or not committed, you could put them in the best program in the world and it'll fail. Makes it, no it, it really doesn't matter. Makes no difference. All right, I'm going to hit the X-Files again. A lot of questions. Sorry if you hear all the noise in the background because I'm going through the paper. Questions that we haven't uh, asked. Okay. <laughs> we just dealt with this one, so I'm not going to ask it, but it's just irony that the next question up is, what is the difference between a 12-step <laughs> treatment program, a therapeutic community, and et cetera? So we already answered that one, so we don't have to repeat that. Um Do you feel that getting a sponsor is mandatory for long-term recovery? My answer is no. It's not mandatory. Nothing is mandatory other than your commitment to change, your commitment to a a new, positive, constructive lifestyle, your commitment to recovery. It's nothing is mandatory. Not everybody has a sponsor. But guess what? Everybody does have a sponsor. Aha. Because you've heard me say before, a sponsor, there's there's no sponsor badge or sponsor certification that you carry around. A sponsor can be anyone who cares about you and is willing to support you in your recovery and be a, 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 a rock to lean on to be support for you in your down t- your down period, to be there in your up period, to be there all the time when you need them, to support you in your recovery, good, bad, or ugly. And that can be anyone, can, I mean, anyone can fill that role. It doesn't have to be someone that has an official title of sponsor. I've said that before. So, no, it's not mandatory, but guess what? In theory, we all have sponsors. We all have people that have supported us, continue to support us, through this journey. We just don't call them sponsors formally, as is done in the 12-step arena. But you can ask anyone out there who might not be in the 12 steps and has gone through some other type of recovery process, and you, you and if you change the word around and say, hey, you got any support out there for you? They say, well, yeah, I have a friend here, a friend there, and a friend there who supports me. Well, they're all sponsors. 
I agree. Now, I wonder if that's our million-dollar idea, to come up with a sponsor certification program to make you official and give you, like, a badge or something that makes you certified as a sponsor. No? Okay. No, don't see any money in that? I see, I see a slippery slope <laughs> is what I see. That's how you see federal time? <laughs> yes. Yes, indeed. Oh, goodness. Um... And it's not, we've got along that line, right behind it, is how, how do you know when the right sponsor is the one for you? How do you know when the right sponsor, well, I guess they mean how do you know when the, the sponsor you have is the right one for you? Yeah. Not the right sponsor, but the, the sponsor is the right one for you. When you're sponsor shopping, so to speak. Right. How do you know you found the one? I think what we have said over, you know, since we've been on the air is, uh, the person should be a good fit, mesh with you, personality-wise, but simultaneous to that, be uh, a knowledge base okay. for you. Um, not be afraid to hold you accountable, but in an appropriate way, compassionate way, supportive way. You don't need to be hammered and beat down and put in a headlock and have your head rammed against the wall and, and, and whatnot. Um, but the person does need to be, you know, have the ability to, to be firm. True. And and, and tell you the truth. and, and hold tell you, you accountable. Hold you accountable and tell you what you need to be doing. And not give a rat's behind. We say behind instead of the A word. Is that okay with the FA, FCC? I think we can actually drop the full, the full A word if oh, you okay. want. Okay, oh. And not, not dip a rat's ass. There you go. <laughs> so, yeah. All right, let's go to Chris from San Carlos. Chris, welcome. Hey, how are you? Good. How are you? I'm good. So I have a question. How do I know the program I'm in is the right one for me? Well, the program you're in is always the right one for you. The question is, are you ready for it? Well, this time I think I am. But I was wondering because I've been through previous ones before and I've always walked out. And, I mean, Why'd I you walk out? I, because I wasn't ready and I didn't. You know I mean, I had other problems on the outside that I was more worried about. And so with that, Ultimately, it doesn't make a difference what program you're in because if other things override your desire to change your life at that moment in time, then it's going to override it. So you can be in the quote-unquote, and I don't know how that's measured, but quote-unquote the best program in the world, and if you're not ready or if there's other things right and more important at that moment in time that you believe to be, then it doesn't make a difference. Sounds right. We were just talking about that before you, we took you on air. That you know, ultimately, it's it's based on you, the individual. If you're if you're ready, it makes no difference what program you're in. You're gonna you're gonna succeed in that program. You're gonna you're gonna you're gonna progress, and you're going to do the program. You're gonna complete the program, and you're going to move on into your recovery life. Okay. It's all about you. It starts and ends with you. Yeah, that's true. 
Well, thank you. I appreciate that. You're very welcome, sir. Thank you. Have a good one. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. How are we doing on time, Mr. Producer? We're good. I'd say we got about 10 minutes. Okay. Um, Where are you headed? Where are you taking us? I'm going back to the X-Files. Okay. Anytime I get a chance. <laughs> um, why can't I... This is from James. Why can't I seem to just stop using and become a fully functioning member of society. I seem to just stay stuck in this whirlpool of drugs. That's like a cry out. Sure is. Help. My goodness. Whirlpool. Okay. And there's a lot of people in that in that you know, same position right now. Stuck and and it's funny that he uses that term because I've also used that term I've said like the, you're, it's like being in a washing machine when you when you get into the the full grips of addiction. So you use, you go to sleep, it wears off. You wake up, you're you're in the post use depression, and then you use again because you don't want to feel that. So you just get into this vicious cycle of and I call it the washing machine cycle. So he described it perfectly. I'm in this whirlpool, you know, of drugs. Just you know. This cycle of round and round and round and round, and how do you get out of it? That's that's the question. How do you how does a person get out of that? Well, sometimes it requires external intervention. You know, someone outside of you seeing that you're in there, seeing that you're in that whirlpool, and extending a hand, and not waiting for you to grab the hand, but extending a hand, grabbing you, and yanking you. And doing an old school intervention, you know what I'm saying? Um, or you being able to pull yourself out of it enough, you know. So, like, say you're like on the cliff, right? You're you're, you're you fell down the cliff into this abyss, yeah. and you've gotten your hands on the edge, your fingers on the edge enough, and you're able to pull yourself up with one hand, and you got one knee on the cliff. Just enough to reach out and get some help. So you've done it on your own. No one helped you. You just, you had to, you had to fight and claw yourself out of that hole that you were in, and you reached out. And what's important when the person's reaching out is what that there's someone on the other end to grab their That's hand. Right, yeah. And say, come on. That's right. That ask that ask for help, either the nonverbal or the verbal ask for help via the reaching. So those are the only, I mean, is there any other way? There's only two ways I can think of right now. Either someone externally yanking you out of it or you pulling yourself up enough to extend the hand, someone being there to them, boom, pulling right. you up. Yeah, no, I believe that would be it. Don't ask me why I'm thinking of abyss and cliff analogies. I haven't been rock climbing or doing anything <laughs> of that nature. <laughs> okay. I have no idea where that came from. Okay, well, it worked. It worked swimmingly. Uh, let's stay in the X-Files. We have a lot that we've built up here. When, when we, we've talked about this subject, so a person's asking it, 
when our children have substance abuse-related problems, is it better to let the powers that be guide them to recovery or intervene? intervene? Example, how do I get past the existing parent-child dynamic to encourage recovery? Well, I think we've talked about it before. We have. Okay, that if you're a parent who's in recovery, okay, that... More often than not, you're not in the position, even if your child is dabbling or in, in, in their own depths of addiction, you're not in a position to engage for various reasons, yeah. some obvious and some not so obvious. And it's appropriately worded because of the parent-child dynamic. It's just not going to work. So the hope is, is that someone else in the family aunt, uncle, grandparent, someone else can intervene because as selfish as it may sound, the cold, hard, raw truth is that you are the most important person in the world. And even if your child is struggling with addiction, you're also struggling with addiction. You're also trying to get your act together. You're also trying to get on this recovery highway. You can be of no service and of no help to your child until you get your act straightened out. And once you get your act straightened out, once you get yourself on the recovery highway, firmly on the highway, I don't mean, and I'm, this is California language, we've got mostly four-lane highways. I know back east, in, especially in New York, we're still dealing with three lanes. But here we've got lane one, lane one, lane two, lane three, and lane four. You can't be in lane one and trying to help your child who's also in lane one. That's right. Okay, you got to be in lane four, you know, well, you know, well on your way in the postpartum phase. There you go. Okay, you're in the postpartum phase of your recovery experience, your treatment experience, and then maybe... You might even be beyond that. Beyond that, right. And uh, and then, so you're now straightened out a little bit, and now you can possibly engage... And get involved, help, be a part of the the intervention, etc. But while you're while you're in the midst of trying to get your act together, there's nothing for you to do, nothing for you to say. Someone else has to handle that. Which is what he says. He sa- you know, or is it better to let the powers that be? Which I'm gathering that's what he means. Yeah, you know, like, there's nothing I can do because of where I'm at and, and the situation I'm in. So I have to uh, put it to the to out to the universe and hopefully. Some other family members will help my child. I don't know what right. else you can do. But you certainly can't do anything while you're in uh Lane one. In lane one. Uh do we want to do phones or stay in X Files? I got lots. I, I got a, a stack here. So I think we have like time for one solid call. Okay. One solid call here. All right, you let me know. Do we do we want to go unscreened? Do we want? I think roll? we got time to do screened do and one X file. You want? Unless you're, you're you're gambling here. You you want? You, I, I you want to go Reno here? I think we're gonna go Reno okay. right now. All right, let's go Reno. Coming up with words here. All right, welcome to Roach on Recovery. Your name and hometown, please. Hi, my name is Lavella from San Mateo, California. Ah, welcome, Lavelle. How can we help you? Yeah, my my question is, my question is today, 
that um, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm sorry. That you know, going through recovery. I remember a couple shows back, he were talking about the different stages, just like uh, like a woman being pregnant, trimesters and stuff like that. I don't yes. know if you remember the show. So yes, I do. I feel like I'm in this second trimester stuck point because I know me and my my uh, um, like instant gratification kind of mode thing. I'm having a hard time being patient with. Um, I feel like I'm not moving. I mean, each day I know that I don't use the use another day forward. But it's like I, I'm looking for men in my life that will help to challenge me to make better decisions. And it's just, I, I guess my question is this. In holding on during this second stage, I feel like I'm not, I'm not doing nothing. You know, I, right. I feel like. Let me interrupt, Lavelle. Okay. Let me interject. Second trimester. If you recall, one of the things we, uh, one of the most important things we said about the second trimester of the treatment experience, the recovery experience, is mm-hmm. that it is the one of the longest periods because the person is doing during that period, similar to the baby in the womb, it does its most growth. During that period, you're doing your most growth during this period. So it may appear to you, it may seem to you, it may feel like it to you that you're, my hands are in quotes, stuck, when in fact what's really occurring, because it's impossible for you to spend days in sobriety Spend days being clean, one day, next day, next day, and change not occur. Because every day that you're, cl- you're clean, change is occurring. It's just hard for you, the person that's in it, to see it. Mm-hmm. So sometimes, especially during the second trimester, and we talked about this in, during that show, is when you most often need someone from the outside to tell you that, I see change happening there. I see a difference between you from when now, between when you, that first 30 days when you were here. Right. So you need a little, you need a little pick-me-up, a little, you know, a little, little electric shock there to let you know that you're doing okay. It's like you, know you what said, I'm I, yeah, it just feels, I mean, I guess I want to, which I know I can't do things just perfect, but Lavelle. I really want to do better than I did before. Okay, and Justin, I got, unfortunately, we're running short on time, and the producer's okay. getting ready to cut me off again for the second <laughs> week in a row. But real, but real quickly, um, you, what, you, what you want is what you're going to experience in the third trimester. You want it now. We want, we, we want what we want when we want it now. Instant gratification, just like you said. So, yes, you have to be patient one day at a time. It will come. And when you get to that third trimester, you'll be able to look back at what you experienced during the second trimester and say, wow, I can now see the change. All right. Okay? Thanks a lot. God bless. Great great question. Thank you, sir. Uh-huh. Bye-bye. 
Why are you always trying to cut a brother off? Hey, man, I've got a, a, a timetable to, to keep. you got a job to do. Okay, exactly. I Perfect. So, anyway, we would like to thank everybody who, again, listened today or folks who are uh, listening regularly, all the callers who are calling in with great questions, all the continued support we continue to receive. Please the do what, The questions via email. The, question, the X-Files. Yep. Uh, and please... Do whatever you have to do to follow us on our uh, radio page, huh? <laughs> uh, and with that said, have a great rest of the week and a great weekend. We look forward to talking to everybody next Tuesday.
That's our show for this evening. Thank you for listening. Be sure to listen to our next broadcast Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time on blogtalkradio.com forward slash OCG Radio. Like us, friend us, and follow us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash OCGWorkCA and on Twitter at OCGWorkCA. You can listen to podcasts of all our shows on iTunes under Roach on Recovery or on our Blog Talk Radio homepage. This has been a presentation of OCG Recovery Radio. Until then, baby, are you